Colleges and universities have become major sources of outbreaks all over the country, with college-based outbreaks in all 50 states. In new tapes from journalist Bob Woodward, Trump revealed he knew just how serious the virus was, even as he played it down in public. One of several Phase three clinical trials was temporarily halted over serious neurological symptoms in a participant. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. If you're like me, you probably found yourself up in your feels quite a few times since the pandemic started. If it's not the staggering loss of life, it's the loss of livelihoods. If it's not the interminable exile into our own homes, it's the fact that we desperately miss people COVID-19 has ripped from us. And sometimes you want a good song to help you get those feels all the way out. But part of the experience of music is the show, the fact that you're supposed to pay attention to the performance, not everything that's happening backstage. But when you do, you realize that like all things, COVID-19 has taken its toll on the people who make our music. Already, music is one of the most inequitable industries out there. For every act in the top 40, there are 400 others who are barely scraping by. And as streaming platforms have decimated the income stream from selling music itself, more artists rely on touring revenue to pay their bills and support their work. Still more are turning to platforms like Patreon and Bandcamp that cut out the record industry altogether. Today, we take a look at how COVID-19 has impacted the musicians in the industry they work in. We'll talk to Nika, a.k.a. Zola Jesus, a singer-songwriter and music producer, about how COVID-19 has impacted her life. We'll also hear from artists all over the country about how the pandemic has impacted them. Then we meet Anthony Fantano, a.k.a. the Internet's busiest music nerd and host of The Needle Drop, to talk more about the industry. Our guest is Nika. She performs as Zola Jesus, and she is a singer, songwriter, and music producer. Uh, Nika, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about your music. Um, well, music is a huge, it's the entirety of my life, just about. Um, I've been doing it ever since I was very young, trained in opera. Um, eventually, I decided instead of making opera, I wanted to make noise and punk music. And then from there, Solo Jesus was born, which is kind of a mesh of pop, soul, punk, noise, opera, whatever, <laughs> everything. And here we are. And how, how long have you been in music? And then also, how long has music been your primary means of, of making a living? Well, the Zola Jesus Project um, is the only time that I've done music professionally, and that's been going for 10 years now. Um, and that's as long I've been a professional musician for 10 years. So that's my only source of income. And um, tell us about how COVID-19 has shaped um, your ability to, 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 to make an income as a musician. The ways COVID has impeded upon my livelihood are innumerable. Like, first of all, I was supposed to be traveling to LA to record my next album back in March. Um, but then all the restrictions were put in place and I couldn't travel. So I couldn't make my record because all my musicians are that I'm going to be working with are in LA and New York. So I've just basically been twiddling my thumbs and, oh, all of my shows have been canceled. Thankfully, I didn't have that many shows this this year, but other musicians have had tours canceled and touring is the primary source of income for most musicians these days. So to not have that has been just a huge blow to the security and stability of, you know, almost every musician's livelihood this year. And how have you been able to scrape by? Have there been any programs that have uh, supported you or, or helped you out in this moment? 
Yeah, there were a couple um, like grant programs, um, but for me, I've, I'm really lucky because a couple years ago, I could see that the music industry wasn't heading in a good direction, so I decided to get a Patreon, which is a, a you know communal mutual support, uh, direct support kind of platform, and that's been actually I'm surviving off of that right now, um, and I'm so grateful for that. But other than that, there's there's really nothing. That that is a, a really Important point. Um, what does COVID nineteen and you know the cataclysmic impact it's had on the industry tell us about the precarity of the industry to begin with? About what's wrong with the way that we uh, pay for um, music and how it you know funnels to potentially the wrong pockets. Uh, well, almost like every other industry, the uh, people at the top have decided that they're the ones that are you know worth the most of the money. So. Um, they take most of the cuts. And due to streaming, which has really revolutionized the way people can listen to music, which is amazing and incredible and revolutionary, but it um, it doesn't pay anything to the artists. It pays half, maybe half a cent per stream, if even that, um, less than half a cent. So, um, you know, someone says they have a million streams and that doesn't really mean anything <laughs> in terms of dollars, you know. It just means that that their song was listened to a million times, which is great. It's great exposure, but it just really changed the ability to make a living off of your music now because in the past it was just about selling physical media and touring, but really mostly record sales were really buoyed the the survival of artists. And that's just all but gone. And on top of it, you know, music journalism is struggling press in general and media in general is struggling. So really most of what musicians are forced to do is to sell their music to advertisements, do sponsor sp brand sponsorships. Basically like anything that you would consider selling out in the 90s is not the only way that you can make money. It and um uh, yeah, so it's just incredibly incredibly difficult right now and we're really going through a change, an industry change, I think. Um but it's not sustainable at all, at all right now. So that's been going on for quite a few years, but COVID just, um, it hastened the impact quite quite a bit. You know, it's, it's um, both sad and fascinating how we're hearing the same story independent of the industry, right? Um, but, but particularly with the arts, because, you know, in our society, we just don't do as much to invest in culture um, and it's created the space where, you know, artists and culture makers, um, are ripe for exploitation. Um, and in, in, you know, we see that, uh, across different, uh, industries, particularly in, in the cultural space. Um, what would you have wanted to see, you know, from the government, uh, or, you know, other entities in terms of keeping artists whole and supporting the arts and, and, and culture uh, in our country, both through the pandemic, uh, but more generally? Well, the, the lack of interest in investing in culture is just a huge issue because if you don't invest in culture on a sort of like a scholarship level in a way, then you're investing in, in ad agencies and, and corporations to invest in culture. And that means that our culture is now compromised by... Uh, profit and profit is often garnered through doing the same thing over and over and over again, but just a little bit more intense. <laughs> so we're getting a lot of the same music coming out, a lot of the same movies coming out, a lot of franchises, a lot of everything that's um, not novel 
there's no novelty or revolutionary art or culture happening because no one's willing to invest in it because it's too much of a risky move for those corporations. So, you know, I'm, as a musician, I understand the impact personally, but, you know, as a fan of culture and the arts, I'm really terrified for especially um, American culture because it's becoming usurped by um, just uh, subliminal advertising in a way. And um, we're not really getting a true response to history. We're getting this sort of manufactured idea of what it should be, which is common. But, you know, you'd think in a democratic, you know, nation like this, there would be a little bit more, you know, freedom of expression, shall we say. And that's just been, that's been something that we're all fighting with and fighting against. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's not, um, it's not unheard of uh, for the government to actually invest in in the arts, culture, and artists. This actually happened um, in the New Deal. Uh, there was a federal music program uh, in the New Deal, and and you know, to think that we've sort of ceded culture making to uh, what can sell a product um, says a lot about you know the way that we've we've sort of <laughs> given up so much, so many aspects of our society to what uh, can be sold for profit, and you know the people who suffer are the people who are making it. I want to ask about, you know, your peers, you know, you, you were able to jump on Patreon, uh, sort of a crowdsourced, um, uh, creator space. I, I assume many people have tried to do that. Not always as successful. Um, what have you seen your peers do? I mean, have you, have you, um, talked to folks who've been sort of knocked out of, uh, the profession and, you know, what does it mean for this generation of artists, um, to have gone through this? It's... It's really sad because a lot of people that have so much to say and so much to give on a creative artistic level can't can't do it anymore because they just can't afford to. They can't afford to do this and work a full-time job. You know, this is I think people think that music just happens and all this stuff happens, but it takes an incredible amount of work to create music you're proud of and to go on tour and, you know, to to just do all of the things that it takes. It is a full-time job, at least for me. So it's been it's been really heartbreaking to see a lot of people not be able to do it anymore. Um, I, I think some people are trying to do live streaming concerts. Uh, and actually, I started a platform back in March called Choir that was basically like a, a calendar events page for live stream events because I wanted to help mm. centralize things um, to be able to give people a place to go to be able to, you know, just promote their events and everything. Um, because that, that's another thing is that a lot of people are live streaming here and there, but it's so decentralized that people don't even know what's happening. Um, but other than that, I honestly, I'm not even sure. I would love to know what other people are doing because it just seems like I'm hearing a lot of people struggling, you know, and people not knowing what to do and feeling very lost right now because there's really no one to grab our hands as we're sinking <laughs> in the ocean. You know, I, I know that um, for people who are blessed with with those gifts, um, there is a real um, there there is a real connection between the products that you create and the emotions that you feel. And you know the best art um, isn't about the craft of of the art. It's about the feeling that it's meant to create. And you know you get Strong feelings created from strong feelings experienced, and this is a time of very strong feelings. How has COVID nineteen affected the creative process of of music making for you and uh, and your peers? 
Uh, well, my peers, actually, I live with a, another musician and he's been handling a lot better. I would say he's creatively thriving right now, making very, very manic and, and it, he's really reflecting and digesting the, the, the times much better than I am. Whereas I feel like I don't even know how to create under these circumstances because it, I just feel so afloat in a way. Um, I think some artists create regardless, and, and but for me, I feel really invigorated by creating as a means of connecting with people. So that's been helpful for me is to just try to communicate and distill and metabolize what's going on right now and give it back to people in a way that feels like more easily digestible. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's very hard be just because of the emotional, you know, artists are very sensitive. And so, um, we're feeling it all right now. And it's, it's sometimes it's hard to really translate that in the moment. So I have a feeling a lot of artists are actually paralyzed. Um, at least I am quite a bit. Um, but some are really, really taking that energy and turning it into something beautiful. Hmm. That's um, fascinating what you said. So I would say the closest thing I ever get to art is uh, oratory. I do a lot of public speaking uh, in, in my work. And, um, and I've always found that when I can't see my audience, I can't connect. And, and I almost think about it as flying blind. So, you know, if I remember speaking on a stage and there's bright lights, I almost always ask them to turn it down so I can see the audience. And it's fascinating what you said, right? Because so much of the emotions that you're trying to communicate, um, you require other people to, to sort of, to source. Uh, and I, I never thought about, you know, how the disallocation from other people, or at least the change in the way that we experience, um, other people shapes the way that we then, uh, we then filter those emotions and then feed them back. Um, and that, that really is so profound around, you know, this experience of, of being both connected and disconnected. You know, we have ubiquitous connection opportunities, but rarely do we actually get to touch, you know, each other in a human way, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Um, how do you see the music industry going forward from here? What, needs to change? What do you think is going to change? And what does it mean for the future of culture creation? Oh, it's going to need to be rebuilt. Like, you know, it's, we're really, it's not doing, it doesn't seem like it's doing well. I would encourage it to be rebuilt in a way that, um, encourages more like smaller communities. And, um, I, I think that streaming needs to be restructured it needs to be restructured. It, it has to be restructured because it's not sustainable for the artists. It may be great for the listeners, but the artists are suffering deeply because they're not, they've, they're missing almost all of their income that they used to get. So that's going to need, need to change, but also arts funding, like Canada has some great arts funding. They have some great arts programs that, and a bunch of my friends have gotten them in Canada. And I wish I was Canadian sometimes so I could uh, benefit from them. But really that, you know, you need to invest in things that you want to see grow. And if we're just going to rely on corporations to invest in things, we're not going to see them grow in a natural way. Everything's going to grow in a very unnatural sort of like Frankenstein, gargantuan, strange, <laughs> strange way that's not going to actually reflect us, but an ideal that we need to end up buying back in a way. Um, so I think cutting out the sort of neoliberal capitalist context from the music industry, even though it might be very painful and hard, it, it's going to have to be inevitable in order for music to really contribute to culture in an honest way again. Mm. And what can people do um, to support you and, and, and other uh, music makers at this time? 
I would really, really urge people to use websites like Bandcamp, which um, allow you to purchase music directly from artists and um, buy records from them. It's basically like an online record store slash digital store. Um, doing that instead of doing Spotify or Apple Music or doing both, but, you know, just really d like going to the source supporting people's Patreons, like no musician right now I know is, is like flourishing under these circumstances. So finding any way you can dir directly support the musicians is the way to go. Mm. And uh, we asked this to everybody. So how are you spending uh, these days? I just, I, uh, I made wine today. I'm currently making wine. <laughs> um, and, you know, trying to maintain my Patreon, but also trying to, uh, you know, do other things to keep myself from going crazy. Uh, we wish you well and we're really grateful uh, to you for both your music and also uh, for your time with us today and helping to educate us about the experience of both where our music comes from and what the consequences of COVID-19 have been um, and we really really appreciate it um, and if you could um, let us know where folks can uh, check out the uh, the streaming event yeah choir.tv k-o-i-r.tv dot tv yeah that's it you can learn more about Zola Jesus at ZolaJesus.com and check out her live stream coordinating site at choir.tv, K-O-I-R.tv. We asked musicians all over the country to share how COVID-19 has impacted their lives. Here's what they shared. Out of an independent singer-songwriter. First and foremost, the live gigs dried up in March of this year. And the pandemic happened just as me and many musicians were gearing up for the big season, the busy season, summer. And especially true when you live in Minnesota, there are only a few months to squeeze in all these festivals and stuff like that. And that all disappeared this year, all of it. My last tour was in March in Europe, and I was one of the last flights back to the U.S. before the borders were shut down. I'm currently hustling on Patreon. I've started a podcast. I recorded a record anyway. I'm sort of going through the motions and trying to keep the machine running as long as I can. We are big open micers. We hit the open mic. We love the open mic, the community, the camaraderie of watching other people get up there. Five to seven minute sets. Sometimes you nail it. Sometimes you bomb. That's probably the thing I miss the most is the work in putting myself out there. I don't know when that's going to come back. And anyone that thinks they know is, uh, is crazy. I have no idea when I will be going back to work full time. My last day of work was March 5th in Los Angeles, followed by a nervous flight back to Chicago, wondering if I would contract this weird coronavirus I kept hearing about. A week later, I was afraid to even open my apartment door. The past few months, I've been involved in starting an international music collective between Detroit and Windsor, with uh, three Detroit artists and three Windsor-based artists. We would throw monthly shows and release music and collaborations together, and it was really amazing for a while. And then everything shut down. The borders closed. Um, I can't see my Canadian friends. My producer lives in Windsor and I can't get over there to work in the studio with him. We've been fortunate to work with a handful of presenters and buyers to organize virtual alternatives for this year, all of which have included us setting up as a six-piece band in the backyard with a computer, audio interface, mixer, mics, curious neighbors, a couple cell phones taped onto some monitor stands. I ended up releasing my album a few weeks into the quarantine, and I wasn't sure how it was going to affect the release. But people seem to be really grateful for new music, and I think it was comforting in some way. So 
I'm glad for that. Thank you to Besson and the Supernaturals, Hazel English, sound engineer Matt Hannigan, Greg Morelli and Friends Without Benefits, Grace Pettis from Nobody's Girl, Jacob Sigmund of Rare Sound World Music Collective, and Dan Israel for sharing their stories. I encourage you all to look them up and see how you can support them. We'll talk to Anthony Fantano after the break. All right. My guest today is Anthony Fantano of The Needle Drop, a.k.a. the Internet's busiest music nerd. Uh, We're really excited to have him uh, to be our Sherpa uh, into understanding how COVID-19 has uh, impacted the music industry. Anthony, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on. So I, I want to understand, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a musician. I don't know much about the industry. Can you walk mm. us through how musicians generally make their money? You know, what proportion is touring revenue versus streaming versus other sources of income? There's so many layers to it. I mean, I think even maybe more layers than I fully appreciated before all of this had happened. But mm. I mean, you you are right to sort of start there in the live show aspect, because I, I think to your average person, that's maybe the most obvious way, you know, that it impacts everything, because uh, that's how musicians do do make a good bulk of the money that they do off of their albums. Because I mean, record deals and how much money in terms of streaming sales or in advance an artist may get really depends on the artist, the popularity of their music, the label Mm -hmm. they're on. It's really a case by case at the end of the day. Uh, But what's for sure, I mean, according to most deals, like the touring revenue that you make is yours, you know, Uh, but you do have to assume with most artists, whether they're mainstream or independent, if they're on a label, they're experiencing some type of split of the money made off of their album to some degree. Um, so as a result, you know, they a lot of them are relying on alternative revenue sources to sort of continue making ends meet and be able to have the money to continue doing what they do, you know, continue in their profession. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, uh, live, live events and touring are just kind of a, an essential part of that. I mean, to the point where, you know, I'm starting to see the importance and the significance as this drags on, um, to even the album recording process, because Mm. without an opportunity to tour behind a new record, um, as the months have drawn on, there just seems to be less and less incentive for artists to sort of work on that new album, put that new album out, maybe because they can't go to the special studio they want to, or the, you know, recording, you know, conditions aren't ideal or, as I just said, once that album drops and maybe they make a certain amount of money off of it, that's not going to last them the rest of the year. Or they get a certain amount of an advance from their label for completion or some money for the next project. Uh, they're not going to have the opportunity to do a full national or international tour behind that to really fully capitalize off of you know, the revenue potential of that album cycle. And as of right now, there are just so many unknowns and questions as to how long any of this is going to last. I think for the first part of this year, there were a lot of artists and booking agents who were kind of crossing their fingers and and to an extent are still functioning. I mean, I have friends of mine who are in the industry who are performing artists who are still talking to booking agents and (laughs) they're booking out till 2021 as if like once we cross over into the new year, this is all just going to disappear, you Mm. know? 
um, you know, they're really kind of hoping for that to be the case. And, and I understand this is like their livelihood. This is their lifeblood. I mean, all you can really do is kind of hope and pray being as out of control as the situation that you are, that it's all just going to kind of remedy itself at, at some point. Um, but, you know, at, at this point, artists are really, I think, starting to lose a little bit of hope in terms of when this is going to end. So, you know, the, the, it's ideally you would want to tour within a certain time frame after your album has come out because you want your record to be fresh in everybody's heads. You want everybody to be excited for the album, singing the songs, addicted to the singles. And in our age of information overload, there is just so much music saturation that album cycles move a lot faster than they used to. And people mm. aren't coming back to what is quote unquote their favorite albums as often as they used to, because there's so much availability of music out there on streaming platforms. Mm. So, you know, even, even good albums constantly kind of rotate in and out. So, you know, th there is kind of that fear there. Well, I'll come out with my album, it'll be successful. And if this takes two years to go away, will people still even be interested in seeing it live? Will they, will they have moved on to something else? Mm. I didn't appreciate how, how this was, you know, frankly, backing up the pipeline of new music, right? Because I think for most of us, we see, you know, the the most popular uh, bands and, and artists. And, you know, these folks are folks who, you know, have a lot behind them. But for most musicians, so much of that that revenue is touring revenue. And so, you know, if you don't have an incentive to tour on your new album, then you may delay that new album. That's fascinating. Uh, and I didn't even think about, you know, the, the way that that actually impacted the stream of music. Now, you know, you talked a bit about how booking agents are thinking about uh, COVID-19 and, and, and booking past 2020. But can you give us a sense of, you know, system-wide uh, across the industry, uh, what are the ways that COVID-19 are shaping uh, music and uh, the business of making music uh, beyond what we already discussed? Well, I'll, I'll say two things. I mean, in regards to the booking agents thing, I think there are some booking agents who are trying to find creative workarounds here. I, we could debate, we could debate on the effectiveness of them. You know, I'm not endorsing the safety of any of this, but there are some booking agents who are trying to now start pushing like, you know, COVID safe, socially distant concert events. Mm. Um, some of which I have seen footage of and, and look on the surface to be relatively safe and they're outside and it seems like there's a certain amount of distance between everybody. I mean, it. I, I can't think of a better scenario. I guess if, you, if there was to be a scenario. I have a friend of mine personally who did a drive-in tour where everybody was in their cars, you know, mm. um, and people sort of like drove in and he was literally set up on like a movie theater stage, you know, in front of the screen and was doing his thing up on the screen. And, you know, um, now I have seen footage of some of these concerts in general where, you know, booking agents have kind of sold people on this socially distant experience and we're all outside and so on and so forth. And and you look at pictures of the event and everybody's outside of their car and in a group anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like, so, so once you create that atmosphere, you, you are still kind of expecting for people to still make those responsible decisions. You know what I mean? And when something's a party and you have people who may not be acting with the best of intentions or may not even be sort of even a sober mindset. You know, you don't know if everyone's going to be making the best decisions in, in those moments. So, you know, we are seeing changes in terms of how people are trying to find workarounds. Then changes in terms of how artists are operating because, you know, they can't go on like this forever. I, I'm I'm beginning to see artists kind of seek out alternative revenue sources, whether they are putting out extra content on Patreon whether they are writing and recording 
sort of like lo-fi homespun, you know, this is my quarantine album, you know, and, the, and this is what I'm going to mm. do from my place. And kind of the theme is, you know, that I'm in the middle of this, or at least like, you know, the, the, the current state of things is impacting the recording quality and the overall aesthetic of what I'm doing. And I hope that you guys, my audience can appreciate it from that standpoint. I am seeing some artists, uh, for better or for worse. I mean, you know, uh, I will, uh, defend it in saying that I've, I've seen some creative approaches, but I'm seeing some artists land on OnlyFans. Um, mm. I am. And, uh, and, and I guess another thing for some weird reason that the, the one thing in terms of how artists have been operating and putting out new music that I cannot explain whatsoever. I don't know what about the current situation is dictating this or informing this or making this to be the case, but exponentially I've seen like, you know, a 10, 11, like 12 fold increase in the release of cover songs. I don't know why everyone wants mm. to come out with a cover song during all of this. I I really have no idea what drives that, but th there has been a lot of cover songs as of late. Maybe, maybe because everybody in this moment's feeling really nostalgic and, and, and mm. hoping for and missing a time when things didn't suck so bad, but there's a lot of covers. Like it's, I, I, I see a handful of covers coming out from a lot of, uh, notable artists every week. And, and I don't know why. I mean, I, it probably, it probably draws back to nostalgia. I mean, musicians are emotional people at the end of the day and you know, they're as affected by this as everybody else is. So, I mean, I, I think that they're probably feeling a little bit of that. 2020 emotional escapism there. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm, I, we're really thoughtful in, in this podcast about thinking about how policy interacts with public health. And, you know, we saw the PPP loans, we saw the $1,200 checks, but that's long gone. And it's been, you know, uh, over a month now since uh, benefits ha have dried up even on the unemployment front. Um, has there been any dedicated bailout funds uh, available for musicians that can keep the music flowing? Um, and if so, how have musicians taken advantage of that? Uh, and if not, um, why do you think not? Um, for musicians, I don't think so. And, and for venues, no as well. Because, you know, during all of this, we've seen a complete shutdown or shuttering of a lot of very long running music venues where so many underground and mainstream greats have played over the years. And they just, you know, they're still being asked to pay their rent during all of this, during a time when they literally can't function business wise. And I mean, the people who they owe rent to, I don't know what their plans are for the spaces. Like, what are you really going to do with this space? Like, how are you going to throw a more functional business in there during this point in time? It doesn't make sense, but, um, still it is being required of a lot of these venues to pay rent and pay utilities, uh, even though that's literally an impossibility at this point. Um, now, as far as, uh, musicians go, I mean, traditionally musicians, it's, it's barely considered unless you sort of like turn your venture into an LLC and start paying yourself and you become an employee of whatever the hell it is, you know, you've turned into, um, you know, a, a corporation, an S corp, if, if we're talking tax wise, I mean, for the most part, uh, musicians, I mean, if they're not sort of like up on their tax game, they're just considered sole proprietors, self-employed, um, Prior to this, musicians barely even, you know, uh, get healthcare, you know, unless they're paying it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I imagine a lot of musicians as a result of not being employed in a traditional sense um, are not have not been getting, you know, sort of like these these types of checks, um, you know, just like prior uh, because of their employment status, uh, they, they weren't getting health benefits, you know, paid by their employer. It's not like the moment you sign to Atlantic Records, you're on the healthcare plan. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> it's uh, that's that's something that you know you're sort of left up to your own devices to to, to figure out. Um, because you know at the end of the day, like when you're when you're contracted to a label, you're you're treated like a contractor. You know, you're you're not treated like an employee of the company. Um, so so yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine that these. Uh, that these benefit checks for a lot of the underground and independent musicians. I mean, you know, a guy like Post Malone, for example, I'm sure he's fine. You know, I'm, I'm sure Post Malone is okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure he's doing all right. But uh, for a lot of the musicians out there who are sort of at that mid tier where they're not on a major label, but they have an audience of maybe, let's say, 50,000 to 100,000 people that really care about them. They buy their merch, they go out to their shows, and they stream their records and they, you know, support what they do. Um, you know, for people who are in that position, which there are more musicians in that position than ever, thanks to the internet age, thanks to the age of streaming, it's really kind of leveled the playing field in terms of like musicians and artists being in control of their career and being able to kind of scale uh, things effectively and just kind of, you know, do things independently. But uh, but still, this is this has massively impacted them. And, and like I said, I can't imagine that they're seeing uh, the benefits of this very short run of checks and unemployment, which uh, are, are pretty much depleting at this point, as you pointed out. Mm. And what this all points to, even beyond this industry, is the precarity of the system before it got hit by COVID-19. And, you know, as someone who, who thinks about the music industry, what does this tell us about the way uh, our society pays for and values music and musicians? And, you know, if we were to rethink the system so that it was COVID proof, what would we change? I mean, I think, uh, you know, one thing would definitely be Medicare for all, because, I mean, I think musicians are, because of the nature of their job, because of, you know, touring, how taxing that can be physically and emotionally. And, um, you know, just the fact that their jobs don't typically offer them that. And, and, and being out on the road, if something, you know, let's say it's a new disease in the future. And, that, you know, there was a point in time where COVID, we didn't fully understand it or know what we know about it now. And it wasn't quite in the mainstream yet, even though it had crossed over into the States. I mean, you know, musicians are a ripe demographic for they're traveling all around the country. They're interacting with random people. I mean, there could be even a new, newer, newish pandemic coming five, six more months down the road that we don't know about yet. And, you know, again, let's say hypothetically, if shows, concerts were back in rotation, uh, you know, you're talking about a demographic of people who are who are always traveling, always going somewhere, always meeting new people, bringing large audiences of people together, like, you know, with without a, a robust healthcare system. Um, you know, you're you're massively neglecting that uh, that demographic of people, and um, you know, I, I think uh, in America, I think the way we value musicians is honestly like very similar to the way that we we value the troops in a way. You know, it's like we do it in this very symbolic and very ritualistic type of way, but you know, in in actuality, it's uh, the system is happy to let veterans go homeless. You know, simultaneously, America talks a really good game in terms of like. Its musical roots are so rich and so significant and so important. And think about all the amazing artists. And when you think about America, like you can't help but not think about the American music greats who have, you know, influenced the the world over. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think you don't really need to look any further than just, you know, seeing how much the music industries at large across the world copy a lot of what American labels and artists do. 
I mean, you know, one of the newest music crazes across the planet, K-pop, is really an amalgamation of pop and hip hop and electronic music forms that have all been sort of groomed and created over here. You know, they're, they're being put together in a new and refreshing and exciting way that, you know, is certainly defensible as its own genre and movement and everything. And I'm not trying to discount K-pop or anything that, you know, uh, comes out of that scene. But, uh, um, you know, th there's there's a lot of influence and a lot of power in American music and American musicians, but we really don't, you know, put our money where our mouth is and value it systematically in the same way that other countries do, whether that be Australia, where I've been to, where they have programs supporting musicians and local musicians, and they have regulations on local radio about how much, you know, local music should and could be played, how many Australian artists should be kind of played and given airtime. There's a lot of celebration, you know, it's not just walking, but also talking, uh, it's not just talking the talk, but walking the walk in terms of putting that Australian music on a platform. And, um, you know, the BBC and uh, uh, groundbreaking DJs and tastemakers like John Peel as well, um, you know, have also have always and also been there to, you know, make sure that there was a place for um, British music to sort of thrive, no matter how underground or experimental or, you know, uh, I guess a uh, pioneering it was. And in Canada, you know, there's like tons of, um, you know, maybe not as much as some artists would like, but, uh, you know, there's certainly financial support there for artists who are touring, trying to make a record. I mean, the albums that sort of undergo that process, you buy the album and on the back of it, I, I own records like this. You see the Canadian seal of approval on the back. You know, um, but, you know, there's mm. there's no such thing like that over here. There's not a ministry of the arts over here in America where, you know, there's being any sort of like, uh, uh, you know, filing through of what might be worthwhile or platforming or putting up as, as, you know, something worthwhile or, you know, worth celebrating in terms of like our culture, our heritage as Americans. And, you know, this is really great music and art that's coming out of our country. Instead, it's all just being fed through this, you know, slaughterhouse of uh capitalist greed where sure it comes out with great art and music you know all the time and occasionally i mean um some of my favorite albums you know come out of that system but simultaneously there's a lot of neglect that comes uh toward musicians as, as a result of that system mm. in my opinion yeah i mean it, it's, it's very clear based on what you've described uh in terms of the challenges that musicians are facing you know but the point that you're making about about federally supported music it, it's not unprecedented even in our country uh, the works progress administration during the new deal uh had in its roots the federal music program and uh, in fact fdr said about the american dream that it was the promise not only of economic and social justice, but also of cultural enrichment. And so, you know, you can look at this moment and say there is some real uh, incentive to invest publicly in maintaining our arts, because uh, one of the fears is that folks who were making money as musicians in this super haphazard way that uh, is, so, um, is so dependent on touring revenue, that we don't want those musicians to stop making music. We, we want them to keep being able to do what they do because it enriches our culture. Uh, and the point that you're making is a really good one. Um, you know, folks who are listening want to support uh, musicians. Is there a, uh, a way to go about it? Is there something that they can do to help? I mean, I think, uh, you know, the musicians who you enjoy uh, and, and you care about, I mean, just try to I don't know. Just see, just see it what they they're doing personally. I mean, I I will 
presume that in this instance and in this case, we're not necessarily talking about uh, somebody who's on a major label with kind of a multi-million dollar deal or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as independent musicians out there, if you have a favorite musician who you know is not on a major label or you know doesn't have the biggest record contract or you know doesn't have the largest audience, you know what I mean? Like, you know, when, when we're having this conversation, I'm not necessarily talking about the type of person who you see on the top 40 all the time. <laughs> because, you know, chances are if that's... You're not the, talking about Post Malone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, we're not talking about top 40 stuff necessarily. And and I know that all of us in our music tastes, you know, we, we, we have artists that uh, land on the billboard charts that we love. And we have artists that, that don't, you know, and, and I, I guess I ask, don't just put both into the same category because they're both musicians that you enjoy. Try to, in a way, I guess, more objectively observe like the level of popularity of each artist that you care about, especially if they're an independent artist who you see releasing music on a platform, like let's say Bandcamp, um, who I, you know, I think is one of the better platforms out there in terms of supporting, independent artists and and giving them sort of a stable financial future. I know like every few weeks or so, like on a Friday, they'll totally waive like the fees of the money that you would pay toward their albums and they get all of the revenue. It's like a Bandcamp Friday thing. And they've been indulging in doing that more and more and more since the quarantine because they know the musicians really need it. Um, you know, how musicians uh, tend to operate in terms of like their financial viability really varies on a case-by-case basis in terms of how much music they're coming out with, in terms of the merch that they're coming out with. But what I do know is that all musicians these days have social media. And, you know, all musicians who are kind of worth their salt in terms of like a business-minded attitude where they can actually be successful financially into the future, they will not be shy at all in terms of like, here's what you can do to support me. You know, it's like, head over to my Patreon and get some exclusive content, you know, stream my new album that just came out and share it around or, you know, buy a cassette tape or buy a shirt or buy this thing that I just came out with. I mean, honestly, right now, um, you know, if you really care about a certain artist, I mean, just hit up their social media and see what they're putting out there because everybody's still working, you know, musicians, even though they can't Mm -hmm. tour, they're still doing something because they still have to make some money. And a lot of them are just trying to figure out the best way to communicate that to their audiences and, uh, I, I wish I just had kind of a one size fits all answer, you know, but like I said earlier, some musicians are coming out with more music. Some musicians are landing on Patreon. Some musicians are putting out live content or demo content on Bandcamp for people to buy. Um, you know, some, some musicians are coming out with limited edition, you know, printed albums, you know, physical releases, that sort of thing. Um, it, it really depends. Uh, but, uh, but you know, they're all, they're all putting something out there and just, I guess, do your due diligence to kind of support if you have the money, you know, support the stuff that after this whole thing is over, y- you would hope would still be around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Um, so, so Anthony, uh, tell us, how are you spending these days? I mean, I, Personally, even though I do feel very cooped up and uh, just over the past few days, I I almost feel like I'm getting a little, you know, uh, crazy over the fact that, um, you know, that it just seems like time is melting together and days don't matter anymore. (laughs) And like, you know, um, you know, you forget what like point in the week that you're in or or whatnot, because you're just kind of doing the same thing over and over and over. And there's no breakup of any of it. Um, that side of it is hard. That side of it is, you know, uh, uh, upsetting that side of it, it, you know, really kind of crushes your spirit. 
Um, simultaneously, I guess I don't want to complain too much because I, I feel like one of the few fortunate people who um, my job hasn't in my work process hasn't really been impacted too you know, uh, too hugely by this whole situation, because at, at the end of the day, I could still stay inside and make a YouTube video. <laughs> you know, I can mm. still stay inside and record mm. a podcast. I can still stay inside and, and stream on Twitch without having to worry about endangering myself or anybody or anything like that. Um, so, I mean, you know, uh, my, my process overall, even though, you know, it does seem um, like some, in some respects, you know, there is music drying up a little bit and it seems like, you know, it's, it's uh, almost a struggle to find things to discuss because, uh, so many people are kind of playing it low key and waiting for this to blow over and just trying to maintain their own mental health themselves. You know, I think it's kind of underappreciated just how much work and effort artists put into what they do and how much we're, we're as an audience asking them to continue doing, uh, during this time when I think a lot of people write rightfully so don't feel like doing anything you know I, I feel like musicians in a way should kind of be given that same leeway a little bit at least a uh, a smidge but um you know i i can say personally it has been uh you know arduous and a little mind numbing in a way just like trying to find different ways to keep yourself occupied and keep yourself engaged and keep yourself in high spirits but um i'm at least thankful that i'm still able to continue doing what i'm doing without having to kind of change or streamline the process so much and, and still give my audience what I feel like they deserve at this time. Because, you know, I've certainly heard feedback from a lot of them that the reviews and the more, you know, I guess, sillier or more comedy centric content and the Twitch streams, all of that has been kind of important for them in terms of keeping them preoccupied during all of this. And uh, uh, I'm happy to be able to continue doing it and, and keep my audience in a, uh, at least somewhat in a good mood while all of this is going on. Yeah, well, we, we're grateful for your insights and uh, taking the time out to, uh, to chat with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. You can check out more from Anthony on his YouTube channels, youtube.com slash The Needle Drop and youtube.com slash Fantano, or follow him on Twitter at The Needle Drop. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. AstraZeneca announced this week that it was halting a phase three trial set to recruit 30,000 participants across multiple countries after a participant in the study had new onset severe neurological symptoms that might have been a reaction to the vaccine. Though it's not clear why the participant had symptoms and the study trial has resumed, it was a routine response to a serious outcome to investigate what happened and determine its cause. It is always terrible when something bad happens to anyone and we wish the participant a safe and speedy recovery. But as far as the vaccine development process, this should actually be reassuring. We do these large-scale studies so that we can identify any and all challenges to safety and efficacy before we deploy the vaccine into the entire population. The fact that the trial was halted so that proper safety checks could be deployed and a full investigation was done should reassure us that whatever vaccine does come out of the process is safe and effective. In the context of Trump's attempts to politicize the vaccine by turning it into an October surprise, we should rest assured that corners aren't being cut here, though we have to remain ever vigilant to make sure that they aren't. Also this week, Donald Trump sat for 19 interviews with journalist Bob Woodward for his new book, Rage, coming out today. This is what he had to say about COVID-19. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your, even your strenuous flus. This is five per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%, you know, so this is deadly stuff. But this was what he was saying publicly. View this the same as the flu. When somebody sneezes, I mean, I try and bail out as much as possible. Trump said that he wasn't trying to raise alarm. The problem, though, 
is that that might be believable if, in the background, his administration was doing everything it could to meet the challenge. But it didn't. It hasn't. Instead, they pressured governors not to lock down, dragged their feet on testing, and marginalized the CDC and silenced their top public health officials. In truth, throughout this crisis, Trump has operated to avoid the political fallout of the inevitable dip in the economy that would come with meeting this public health crisis head-on. Meanwhile, we're nearing 195,000 deaths. Over the weekend, we learned that Trump's administration has been censoring the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, MMWR, the CDC's weekly report of public health incidents, one of the most important scientific resources to the public health and medical communities. This amounts to frank interference with science. It's a chilling reminder of the depths of the war this president has waged against science in the midst of the worst pandemic in over a century. Putting politics over science, it's another reason we need a new president. At Crooked Media, we're organizing to deliver one through Vote Save America, where you can adopt the swing state. Both Trump and Biden were in Michigan this week. They know how important we are. Adopt Michigan at votesaveamerica.com slash Michigan. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.